You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So by a show of hands, how many of you have forgotten something before? Okay, that's most of you. Those of you who did not raise your hand, perhaps you forgot that you have forgotten things because everyone forgets. It's like it's part of being human. And so the better question might be, why do we forget? Andrew Budson and Elizabeth Kensinger are subject matter experts on memory. If you Google their names and you look at their CVs, which is basically their like documentation of why you should listen to them. Between the two of them, their CVs are 104 pages long. I mean, publish, publication after publication, medical journals. They have worked in a, a bunch of different hospitals all on this idea of memory. And they wrote a book together. It's called Why We Forget and How to Remember Better and the Science Behind Memory. They discuss not only how does memory work, but how can we keep it sharp as we age. And throughout this book, one of the things they talk about is that there's this common error that we typically have when it comes to um, thinking about our memory. And it's this, that we often think about our memory like a computer hard drive. You know how it works if you, you make a file and you save it, as long as there's like nothing corrupted, it just stays there for forever. And then when you want it, you go find it. And then when you open it back up, it's just like it was when you left it. But that's not actually how um, our memories um, work. We can't just simply, you know, click on a file and retrieve it without effort. See, memory is an active process and it involves a lot of effort. And so every time that we bring a past memory or a past event to mind, it takes a lot of memory for us to essentially rebuild that memory. Um, they also debunk the common misconception that all forgetfulness is bad, as if an optimal memory system would be one where forgetting never occurs. And actually, forgetting is an important part of our pruning process. We are limited creatures. We, we, we just wouldn't be able to hold all of that information in. And some stuff is trivial and just needs to be forgotten. And so the way God has designed us is that forgetting is part of being human. If something is not relevant or important to us, we forget it. So how does memory work? Well, Budson and Kinziger talk about these three basic phases. Now, this is very, you know, reductionistic, but it, it's helpful to get a framework um, but, uh, in order to think about how memory works. So in order for us to have access to this past content, this memory, the first thing is this. We have to consider the information or this event as relevant and important in order for our brains to go, this is something I should hold on to. If we don't think that what's happening right then is important, we, we just won't store it. So this requires effort and thought. We have to be intentional about what's happening to go, no, no, this is important and I need to hold on to this. Um, second, you have to store the memory. Now here's the kicker. Storing is not a one-time event, like I said earlier about a, a computer. When, when they talk about storing, this is something that happens over and over again. We have to store and restore that content in the brain, meaning we have to rehearse it. We have to think about it often. 
You have to continually take that information and rehearse it so that it becomes ingrained in the brain. And then finally, in order to have access to past memories, you have to be able to retrieve it because it doesn't do any good to have it stored if you can't access it. And often this is where we get into trouble because we, we know that information. It's like the, the word that's on the, the tip of your tongue. You just can't think of it. There's a break in that retrieval process. And they talk about how um, our ability to retrieve that information is a skill that can be harnessed. It's a skill that can be sharpened and grown. And so you can grow this skill by learning how to focus your attention, how to thoughtfully organize your thoughts so it's not just like all shoved into a closet somewhere. Um, it helps if you have a more comprehensive understanding about uh, the material. And then it also helps if you relate that memory to something else that's already known. So you have this familiar thing and you kind of attach it to that and then you're able to retrieve it. So in short, if we want to remember, we have to think that the information that's right in front of us is relevant and it's important. That triggers us to start going, okay, I need to do something with this. Then we rehearse that information to both store and restore it. And then we have to grow in our ability to retrieve it. Well, this morning, as we continue in our series through the book of Exodus, we come to chapter 13. And now if you're reading the story for the first time, Chapter 13 kind of seems out of place. Like we've been going, it's been epic. There's like plague after plague and the people of God are, are now leaving uh, Egypt and you're, you're kind of anticipating the next chapter is gonna tell you where they're going and how did they get there and what's next for them on the horizon as God is gonna form and shape this people. And then chapter 13 is a break in the narrative. See, chapter 14 will pick up the narrative, but chapter 13 is this break. In other words, the story doesn't move forward. There's nothing um, narratively significant about chapter 13. It's, it's a break in the story, but that's not the goal of chapter 13. You see, the, chap the goal of chapter 13 is to impress upon the people of God the relevance and importance of their redemption. In other words, Chapter 13 is saying, hey, this is relevant, it's significant, it's important, and I don't want you to forget it. Just like Budson and Kinziger said, the first step in having access to our memories is to recognize that it's relevant and significant. That's what chapter 13 is all about. It's, it's a clue to us that this is important. And furthermore, it, chapter 13 is going to teach us how God is going to uh, uh, command us to rehearse his redemptive story over and over. Which again, is like what uh, Kensinger and Budson told us. that like you have to rehearse this. It has to become a part of your regular routine. In other words, the goal is that we would store and restore this memory. The goal is that the people of God would be able to retrieve this memory for generations to come. The goal of chapter 13 is that God is creating rhythms so that the people of God can remember their redemption. Why? Well, because we are so prone to forget. We're, we're generally not good at knowing what is relevant and significant and what needs to be um, in the forefront of our minds. We are prone to leave God's redemption in the past and disregard its significance for the present moment. 
We are prone, in other words, to take the grace of redemption for granted. So God gives us Exodus 13 to teach us to remember our redemption. So as we work our way through this chapter, God is going to give the people of God three directives, three commands to help us remember. So first, God calls us to commemorate. If you're taking notes, this is our first heading. It's going to be commemorate. This is a word that means to remember, but specifically commemoration is is remembering together. You take the prefix C-O-M and that means together and then memorate, remember, it's remembering together. And so God is going to institute a memorial meal of remembrance. Second, God is going to call us to consecrate to consecrate. So in the Exodus, God redeems his firstborn son, Israel, through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And to remind Israel of that redemption, of what God did to redeem them, he creates this ritual to reenact this redemption as a frequent reminder to them that they are not their own, but they are bought with a price. And third, God calls us to catechize. Catechism, we did that just a moment ago with our children, is a thoughtful, systematic way of teaching and passing on information with the goal of not just information, but transformation. It often uses questions and answers, and we find that these practices and rituals aren't arbitrary. They aren't meaningless. They are liturgies meant to form, direct, and shape the people of God into this gospel mold so that they become marked by redemption. All of this is aimed to impress upon them the significance of their redemption so that they don't forget it and that they don't neglect the salvation that God has given them. So let's dive into the text together, beginning in chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 3 to see our first directive of commemorate. Here again, the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No unleavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. In verse 3, the very first word in this command that Moses is giving to the people is the word remember. It's the word remember. And just so we're clear, this isn't a suggestion. It's not, it'd be great if you could remember this. Um, if, if, you, if you want to follow wisdom, this is something. No, it's remember. It's in the imperative. This is a command. In fact, it's the first time. I went and read, I I looked, it's the first time in the whole Bible where God has given the people of God a command to remember. The first time. And it won't be the last. In fact, this command to remember will be repeated dozens and dozens of times, becoming one of the most frequent commands in all of the Bible. Over and over, God says, remember this, remember this. Remember this. It's as if God in his kindness and wisdom is saying, every time I tell you to remember this, whatever comes after that is something extremely important that you should not forget. It's gonna be helpful for you as you are trying to live out this obedient life of faith. 
And when you add to this command all the yearly feasts and the rituals of sacrifice that occur over and over again and these liturgies of worship, you get the impression that remembering who God is and what he's done for you is of the highest importance for a life of faith. In other words, one of the biggest problems we have as Christians is that we forget. We just simply don't remember who God is and what he has done. Now, this word for remember is not simply the cognitive act of recalling information. This word for remember also involves a ritual act of commemoration. So it's, it's like a whole body experience. It's, it's, it's engaging the mind, but it's also engaging all of your senses. In fact, experts will tell you that the more senses that you involve in the act of remembering, the, the better chance you have of actually remembering that information. Simply put, God is saying that this day of deliverance is not to go unnoticed. It's not to become vague. It's not to become fuzzy. You know, when you see a picture and it's uh, low quality and it's pixelated, you can kind of make out what it is, but it's a little bit fuzzy. He's saying, don't do that with this day of deliverance. It needs to be 8K ultra high definition. The kind like when you walk into Costco and you see those TVs, you're like, that looks like a real person, right? Like, he wants it to be that clear. And to help the people of God remember, he gives them this feast of unleavened bread and it is supposed to mark the beginning of their new calendar. Now again, I just want you to think about it for a moment, that having a calendar, it becomes so significant. See, as slaves, you don't need a calendar. Your time is not your own. You, you don't own your time as being owned, your owner owns your schedule. You don't need to keep a schedule, they keep your schedule. And every day is a work day. There's no days off, there's no holidays, there's no free time. It's just work, sun up to sundown. You don't have the privilege, you don't have the dignity of organizing your own schedule. You don't get holidays, there's no breaks, you just work sun up to sundown every day, every week, every year. But as a newly liberated people, God begins to dignify them. He says, if you're going to be a people, all peoples have calendars. There's just no culture that has ever existed that didn't have a calendar. That's why one of the earliest inventions in the history of humanity is calendars. Because a culture needs a way to mark the passing of time, to say these days are significant, these days are ordinary, but they all have their place on a calendar. And God says that your day of deliverance marks the first month of your year. You now are a people, and I'm giving you the gift of a calendar. And because of the perennial nature of yearly celebrations, it means that the present and the future will always have a connection to the past. That no matter where you are, as the years go by, you're always looking back on something significant and remembering this was a significant day. Doesn't matter if it was hundreds of years ago, this was a significant day. So here's what happened. Preparations for the Passover would start on the 10th day of that first month. And then that Passover meal would be shared together on the 14th day of that month. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin on the 14th day as well. And so if you think about Passover and Unleavened Bread, they kind of go together and they're significant on that 14th day, like the the deliverance day, victory day. That's the day that God's going, 
don't forget this day. There's preparations before so that you're looking forward to it. And then there's, there's, a, there's a whole week-long feast afterward, all in recognition of that one day. Both the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread essentially take place at the same time and they commemorate the same event being delivered out of Egypt. But though the two are inextricably connected, each one reflects on a different aspect of that day. So the Passover really highlights and, 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 and commemorates redemption from death as the people of God took shelter under the blood of the Passover lamb. That's why on Passover, they, they sacrifice a lamb and they eat it together to remember that same meal that happened back in Egypt. It reenacts it's in a dramatic way the sacrifice of a spotless lamb in exchange for the life of the firstborn son. This salvation through judgment ultimately led to their emancipation from slavery in Egypt. That's Passover. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates liberation from slavery as it reenacts the hasty departure from Egypt. See, that night they couldn't wait for the bread to rise. That night they couldn't wait for uh, the bread to become naturally leavened and rise. And so he said, tonight it's a fast meal. Like, wear your backpack, get ready. There'll be no time to let the bread um, naturally uh, 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 get, get the yeast and rise and all that because we're going to make this flat bread and we're going to eat and we're going to eat some bitter herbs and we're going to go. See, to depart on their journey, they had to be willing to leave uh, dependent upon God. You're not going to be able to take everything with you. You're not going to be able to, to make all the, but you got to be ready to go right now. See, in, in later generations, this unleavened bread would become known as the bread of affliction. Look with me in Deuteronomy 16.3. As they're talking about the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, it says, you shall eat no, no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember, there's our word again, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Egypt. This bread of affliction was meant to remind them of their years of slavery. And remember that the Lord, by his strong hand, was gracious and mighty to deliver them. And so for seven days, they were to remove all leaven, all yeast from their homes. And, and in a way, it was a, it was a reenactment of what had happened. And then the feast would come, the, the feast of unleavened bread would end on the seventh day with a big festive celebratory meal. So every year, their first month of the year would begin by reorienting life to remember their redemption. So whatever happened in that year where they got off track or forgot, the new year begins and it, and it kind of reorients you to rethink your life. In a similar way, we do this every New Year's with resolutions. We go, okay, whatever, uh, whatever resolutions I gave up on in February of last year, I'm back here at January again, and I'm going to rethink my life. I'm going to think about my schedule. I'm going to think about my goals for this new year. I'm reorienting my life around this new beginning. Same with them. As the month begins, it's where, where you have failed to, for, to remember and to appropriate your salvation into the everyday self of life, we're going to reorient you now around this celebration. And to ensure that it wasn't glibly passed over, everything about this commemor commemoration kept it from being merely like a single episode. 
right? If it was just one day, it's easy to forget it. It's easy to go, let that day come and then go. But if you think about it, from the 10th of the month all the way to the 21st of the month, it's centering around, we are a redeemed people. We are a redeemed people. And so the idea is with, with all the preparations, this, the special days of worship, this special diet, this special sacrifice, all begs the question, why are we doing this? And the answer is because the Lord brought us out from Egyptian slavery by the blood of the lamb. J. Alec Matir writes this, thus remembrance was hammered home. Not as a casual annual raising of the hat to a past truth, but as a serious focusing of life's program on the foundational event of miraculous proportions and its continuing and contemporary significance. He goes on to say, should not the birth of Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension command a like ordering of our lives, lest these great memorial occasions become to us no more than flashes in the pan. The serious lesson of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread is that remembering the great central acts of God on which our faith rests demands a larger and more concentrated allocation of time and a more focused ordering of our schedules than is now usually the case. What he's saying is this act of redemption is so significant, it should become the central organizational principle of your life. And we would do well to incorporate rhythms in our lives so that we can remember it and not forget. So to help us remember our redemption, Jesus has given the people of God a memorial meal of remembrance. You remember when Jesus instituted his supper? He said, do this in remembrance of me. So when we take the bread and the cup of the Lord's supper, we are remembering that we are a people marked by the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, and that we too eat the bread of affliction. So that when Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took the unleavened bread of affliction, when he gave thanks and broke it, what did he say? This is my body. This bread is my body, and it's given for you. Jesus was saying, I am the new bread of affliction, and I'm being broken, afflicted, acquainted with sorrow, so that you wouldn't be my life for you. See, Jesus was afflicted so we could become whole. His blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven, so that death would pass over us and secure for us redemption and deliverance from the slavery of sin. And so now this call to remove all traces of leaven serves as a call for the people of God to forsake any attitudes and behaviors that would entice us to look back on our old life of slavery with fondness. See, we're supposed to look back on that as a time of affliction. Now, this might sound strange. You might go, how could it be that the people of Israel could ever look back on their time in Egypt with fondness? But that's exactly what happens in Israel's story. If you keep reading in the Bible and you come to Numbers chapter 11, verse five and six, this is the people of God, this they haven't even been you know, out of slavery for a year. And they say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Because God's leading the people of God. Instead of being like, I cannot believe that every morning bread from heaven falls. They're like, 
Man, it was nice when we had that stew, that fish stew back in, in Egypt, you know, with the leeks and the onions and the garlic, right? They're looking back on their slavery with affection, longing to go back. And this won't be the only time. This isn't the only time where they look back on that time. Next week in, in Exodus 14, they're going to be like, Moses, did you just bring us out here to die? We had it way better back in, in, in slavery in Egypt, you know? And that's what happens when we forget what the Lord has done in our lives. And so this Feast of Unleavened Bread, removing the leaven, remembering, no, no, like slavery to sin was terrible. Sin is meant to destroy you. Don't look at it with affliction. See, this ongoing participation in the meal reminds us we hold that bread and that cup in our hands, both to look back and think on our sin and go, this is terrible. It should be bitter to us. That's why we're eating bitter herbs at the Passover, this unleavened bread. We should look back on the bitterness of life as slaves to sin. That we should remember that, that, that in our slavery to sin, we were without God and therefore without hope. It's like Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter two, verse 12. He says, remember, there's our word again, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is Paul saying, this is what your life was like without Christ. And you need to remember that it was bitter. Friend, it was not better before you came to Christ. It wasn't. The life you lived apart from Christ was slavery. And so when we commemorate the Lord's Supper. We are both to remember the sacrifice of Christ with gratitude and then consider what leaven needs to be removed from our lives. What attitudes need to be forsaken? What behaviors need to be left behind? That's what leads Paul to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity of truth. The Lord's Supper is both a time to remember the, with gratitude the sacrifice of Christ. It's also an opportunity to go, what leaven needs to be removed from my life? This commemorative, uh, commemorative meal is a gift to the church to remember the broken body and shed blood of Christ and allow that memory to inform our present moments so that we are always grateful, always dependent on the Lord, and we are to look forward. Just like the Israelites were ready to leave in haste, we too need to be ready to leave because this supper, as Paul tells us, is both looking back, but it also looks forward to the day when Christ will come back for his people. In the Lord's Supper, we are participating in commemoration with the goal of remembering our redemption. Now, let's look at our second directive to consecrate. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Jump down to verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals, that are males, shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. 
every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So can we just be honest for a moment? This passage is kind of weird. Like Our modern ears hear that and go, I don't even know what to do with this. There's nothing I can connect this to in my life. So let me unpack this ritual. First, we need to go back to something Moses said to Pharaoh in Exodus 4. Remember, this is a story. Exodus 4. God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. All throughout the Old Testament, God will refer to Israel as his firstborn. And Pharaoh has enslaved them. So what is happening in the Exodus, and one way you could look at it is, God is confronting Pharaoh's false claim over them. See, Pharaoh's saying, they're mine, and the Lord is saying, no, they're mine. See, at the heart of the Exodus is a father's desire to get his son back. You could really boil it down that, it, that God is saying, he is my child, and there's nothing that I wouldn't do to get my child back. And the final plague, God brings Pharaoh to his knees and makes good on his word. Because Pharaoh refused to let Israel go, the Lord killed the prince of Egypt. And so in the same way that God wanted Israel to remember their redemption through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God adds another layer with the consecration of the firstborn. Remember, in order to remember, we have to have layers of rehearsal. And so this adds another layer. So what happens is, this ritual first begins with a recognition that every son belongs to God. Did you hear what he said? God told Moses, every firstborn of Israel, both of beast and man, is mine. Now this is shocking to modern ears because all the water that we drink, all the air that we breathe tells us that we are our own, that we are autonomous human beings able to make um, all the decisions for ourselves when, when we want to think about what we want to do, the only person we have to ask is me. I'm in charge of me. We think of ourselves in terms of autonomy. I am my own. No one or nothing owns me. Now, the autonomous self, which is like all of us in this room, we hear these words of God saying, no, you are mine, and we're just a bit suspicious of this. Have you guys ever seen um, people with those t-shirts that say, hail to thyself, for I am my own master. I am my own God. I need no shepherd, for I am no sheep. Anyone ever seen that t-shirt? Okay. So the t-shirt typically also has um, one of the, uh, the satanic uh, idols of worship on there. And I tried to find out who originally came up with the quote, and I couldn't find an answer to that question. But one thing became clear, that this quote, whoever it originated with, um, has become kind of like a creed of sorts for modern expressions of Satanism. So in an official sense, this quote is satanic, because satanic uh, religious groups say, this is kind of our creed, like, I am my own, I have no God, I, I don't need a shepherd because I um, am not a sheep. But I want to say that it also captures like the root of sin because the root of sin is morbid selfishness and I I chose this quote listen I'm not trying to be dramatic I'm not trying to say like every time 
you know, that like you are participating in the satanic cult worship. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the very heart behind our selfishness is actually satanic. Like it's, it's like the thing that drove Satan in his fall. It's what led Adam and Eve to disregard God because they said, you are not my God. I don't need your rules. I don't need your laws. I'm just gonna do my own thing. That's satanic. Again, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just trying to call it what it is. I'm trying to shine the light of truth that extreme autonomy and the darkness of self-elevation is at its root satanic. Meaning you are acting like Satan. As an adjective, you are more descriptive of satanic mindset than you are of a Christ-centered mindset. Our gut reaction is to reject and be suspicious of God's claim over us. And that suspicion, that initial rejection is satanic. And I know none of us say these things out loud, but often we whisper in our hearts, hail to thyself, for I am my own master. I am my own God. I need no shepherd for I am no sheep. At the heart of sin, that is exactly what we're saying. But this runs counter to the truth of scripture. See, God is our father by virtue of creation. We said it earlier that he is our maker and our sustainer. None of you gave life to yourselves. No one. None of us just appeared. God made us and he sustains us. In fact, later, Moses will ask Israel this rhetorical question. Speaking of God, he says, is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? And the answer is obviously yes. And not only is God our father by creation, he is also our father by redemption. So for the believer in Christ, he is your father two times over. He is your creator and your maker. He's also your redeemer. And that's the main point here. His claim is that Israel has always belonged to him. And now as he has redeemed them, they doubly uh, belong to him. And they need to recognize and be grateful for that redemption. And that's why Israel needs to give every firstborn back to God. See, that night when the destroyer came through the land of Egypt, the Lord passed over every firstborn son who took shelter under the blood of the lamb. See, they always belonged to God by creation, but now in a different way, because of their redemption, they belong to God. In other words, they are not their own. They are bought with a price. The very word redemption conveys the idea of cost. The word to be redeemed means to pay back, to buy back. It's embedded into the word. And so in this ritual, God is commanding the Israelites to recognize that they are a redeemed people. God is making a comprehensive claim over their lives. He says, you are mine. I have delivered you. I have saved you. You belong to me. So here's what would happen. Every firstborn clean animal, and there's a, like later in the book of Leviticus, we'll, we'll figure out what are the clean and unclean animals. If it's a clean animal, meaning it can, it can be sacrificed, it would be sacrificed to the Lord. So uh, when a uh, mother, an, you know, came of age, uh, an animal came of age to give birth, that firstborn male 
livestock would be sacrificed to the Lord to say, everything is the Lord's and this is a, a demonstration that we recognize God's claim of ownership over us. If they had an unclean animal, in this case, the example is given of a donkey, donkeys could not be sacrificed. They were considered unclean animals, but it also needs to be devoted to the Lord. And so because you can't sacrifice an unclean animal, there would be a clean animal sacrificed in its place. It would, it would, the donkey would get a substitute. But if a family did not want to give up a lamb for a donkey, then they would just kill that donkey as recognition that this belongs to the Lord. Now, I find it humorous and, and interesting that we are essentially compared to donkeys in this passage, right? Because the donkeys are in need of redemption and so are humans because you can't sacrifice a human. So instead of sacrificing humans, because that would be very, very bad, the son would be redeemed by way of a sacrificial substitute. In fact, as we get closer to Advent, as you read Luke chapter 2, you're going to find Joseph and Mary going to the temple to do this very thing because they now have welcomed a firstborn son into their family. And because they're good Jewish people, they go in accordance with the law to redeem that firstborn son. And they offer the redemptive sacrifice. Again, all of this sounds very weird to our modern ears, but the basic point is this. Redemption is costly. And when you recognize that cost as an expression of gratitude, you give back to the Lord. It's your way of saying, I understand that I was bought with a price, that I am not my own, and that, Lord, you have a comprehensive claim over my life. It's worth noting that in the ancient world, firstborn sons were incredibly important. They signified the future of the family. They had special responsibilities, special privileges, and that firstborn son would represent the entire family. So in other words, as God is saying, um, give to me all the firstborn, it's a way of saying in reality, all of it actually belongs to me. The firstborn is a representative of the whole. The firstborn animal is a representative of all the other animals that will come from him and progeny, right? So in claiming the firstborn, he's really claiming all of them. But in his kindness, he's saying, you don't have to give me a sacrifice every single time a, a cattle is born, right? And so what he's doing is making a comprehensive claim that the whole family belongs to God. In other words, just like a congressperson represents a district, just like a captain represents the team, like an executive represents the corporation, a firstborn son represented the family. And the brilliance of this ritual is that it would be ongoing and prolific. Livestock have children every single year. And so every year there would be the redemption of the firstborn animals. Every time a husband and wife welcomed their firstborn son into the world, it was a way for them to be reminded again, we are a people who are bought with a price. We are not our own. Every spring when livestock firstlings were born, it was a, gay, a way to be reminded again. See, friends, we belong to God by way of creation. But much more than that, believers in Christ belong to God by way of redemption. And that's the whole point of this ritual. This ritual gives us all the reason we need to give our whole lives in service to him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's going to make precisely this argument. He's going to be writing about human sexuality and he's going to say, he's going to give the reason for why we should honor the Lord as it relates to sexuality. 
So if you're asking the question, why does God get to speak into what we do with our bodies? Because isn't my body my own? Don't I get to do whatever I want with my body? It's my body. Shouldn't it be my choice? Paul's going to say, well, let me answer that question. Why does God have the right to, to tell us what is wrong and right sexually? Listen to Paul's answer. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. See, Paul's making the same point. He's saying, remember your deliverance and let that drive you to devotion. The reason why God gets to make comprehensive claims over your life is because he, he owns you. He bought you with the precious blood of Christ. See, remembering your redemption is not just to have some fuzzy, warm feeling about your life in the past. It's also to guide your decisions today. Why should you obey the Lord? Because he redeemed you. You were bought with a price and you're not your own. Remember your redemption and let that drive your purity. Remember that God has saved you and let that drive you towards obedience. God's people are called to remember our redemption both through commemoration and consecration. Now let's look at the last call to catechize. Now, catechize. So purposefully, I left out parts of each of those passages where the father directs um, a son because each one of them, uh, both in the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the consecration of the firstborn, at the end of those, uh, those sections involves a conversation between a father and the son. So let's look at them. Here's the conversation um, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Moses says, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So here you see the father instructed by God to instruct his children. He's supposed to explain the meaning of the meal. The feast was not supposed to be like shrouded in mystery where the kids are like, I don't really know why we're doing this. No, no, they're supposed to explain it to the children. It's not supposed to just be some weird family tradition. The father is instructed to teach the son the reason we're doing this is because God delivered us out of slavery. He's supposed to say, son, we were slaves in Egypt. We were under the heavy hand of oppression, and yet the Lord's hand was stronger. He was able to save us. He delivered me, and by implication, son, he has delivered you out of slavery so that we could be his people. He's supposed to teach his child this is a meal so that we never forget who God is and what he's done. Son, this is a meal that is supposed to remind us that God's deliverance is supposed to be the basis for everything we do in life. It begins our calendar. It's embedded into our yearly uh, lives so that we never forget. In other words, this meal is not a means to a full stomach. It's a formative feast. It's meant to be a part of the spiritual formation of their lives. It's supposed to shape and form them around the good news of redemption. In other words, it's to make them a gospel-formed people. Now look with me at the conversation centered around the consecration of the firstborn, and then I'll put it all together. 
Verse 14, and when in time you come to your son, so mind you, they've just sacrificed uh, an animal for the consecration. He says, what does this mean? And you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I will sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of sons I will redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. Again, the point is these rituals aren't meaningless or empty. So as the son sees his father offering sacrifices, being presenting them to the Lord, it will naturally invoke the curiosity of the the child. Dad, why are we doing this? What is this for? And here the father is instructed to connect what he is doing right now in the present to what God has done in the past. One of the things I love about children is that they're naturally inquisitive. I'll be honest, sometimes it's, it can be a, a lot, <laughs> right? But there's just a natural curiosity to children. And so what he's saying is, listen, they're just going to ask you, like, what's going on right now? And you need to be prepared to give them an answer. Don't get frustrated with them. Don't just say, listen, it's just something God wants us to do. He's saying, no, tell them about what I've done. Tell them about who I am. Tell them that you are a redeemed people. And this is something that we should do to remind ourselves that we are not our own, that we're bought with a price, but also so that we never forget it. Be ready to tell them of who I am. Parents, when we are taking the Lord's Supper, how many of you have had a child ask you, what is this for? What is this, like what's in this? Can I have this, right? They're naturally inquisitive. They're trying to figure out what's going on. They see you doing something as it relates to your spiritual life and they wanna know what it is. And it's an opportunity to tell them, hey, at lunch today, I'll tell you all about it, right? Unpack for them the Lord's Supper, what it's for and what it means. When people get baptized, they see people up here getting into the water. It looks kind of weird. Hey, why is that adult taking a bath at church? Don't you say, it's just something weird we do. No, explain it to them. Tell them, it, it's to symbol, it's, it's me going public with my faith. It's a way for me to symbolize going into the grave and coming up out of the water to celebrate the newness of life I found in Christ. Explain it to them. Tell them about our faith. A few weeks ago, Haddon and I were driving and I was taking him to a friend's house and we were talking about some things and there was a, a natural break in the conversation. And so it just went silent for um, a couple minutes. And then out of his own curiosity, he asked me, hey, dad, when you became a Christian, what was it specifically about Jesus that made you want to follow him? See, the Lord worked through his own natural curiosity. There was an opportunity in the conversation. And he said, dad, why did you want to follow Jesus? And we had an awesome conversation about uh, me when I was 15 years old and what it was specifically about Jesus that drove me to him and wanted me to give up my life to follow him. See, children will see things in your life and they'll have questions and we need to be ready to answer those questions. See, the point of this section, of this section is that when we remember our redemption, we need to be intentional and ready to explain it to our children. These rituals are participatory. They're the reenactments of the story. They are meant to shape and form each generation. Now, 
The beauty of the church is that we can think about passages like this, both in terms of the literal, like parents teach your children, but also the church opens up the family of God to, to, to be viewed in terms of discipleship, right? So it's not just parents instructing the children, but it's believers becoming mothers and fathers and teaching younger uh, generations of Christians. And one of my big hopes as a church is that we would be a place where uh, the men and women of this church, as you grow in maturity in your faith, that you always go, I have something to give. You know, in Titus and in Timothy, Paul says, older men, older women, be ready and willing to instruct younger believers in the faith. You know, when I grew up, I did not grow up in the church. And when I became a Christian and started going to a church, I found I had a whole bunch of mothers and fathers, spiritual mothers and fathers who took me into their homes, invited me to lunches to just tell me about life with Jesus. It was amazing. It was foundational. There should be normative in the church. So these texts give us a basis for catechism. Parents and churches giving thoughtful, systematic instruction to both children and young believers to teach them about how faith is passed on from one generation to the next. Now, don't mishear me. Christianity and becoming a Christian is not the same thing as learning math. You can't just like tell them how to do a problem and then they become a Christian. That's not how it happens. Christianity is not just the passing of information. Christianity is more like this. We are fire builders. So what we do is we clear the space. We put good rocks around it so it doesn't get out of hand. We gather kindling. We build a nice box for that fire. And then we pray to God that he would ignite it. We are fire builders. We don't have fire in and of ourselves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But we should become really good really skilled, really thoughtful about how to build a fire. Because if you're not thoughtful about it, you're not gonna get a good fire. You can't just throw a bunch of wood there and go, I, I hope something happens. No, no, if you're intentional and thoughtful about a fire, it can burn hot, it can burn long, it'll, it'll, it'll burn in such a way that it's not um, so much white smoke. If you do it right, you can get a good fire going and we should be the best fire builders possible. We need to learn how to communicate hard truths to young hearts. We need to learn how to uh, welcome people into our home to make disciples. You can grow in that skill. And then you pray that God would take that, use it, and light it on fire. Our job is to instruct and lead by example and to pray that God would use these efforts to see more and more people, our children and the people in our church, follow Christ. Each of these conversations talks about these rituals being signs on your hand, being between your eyes and on your mouths. And um, this is a way for Moses to say, as you teach your children, as you make disciples, teach them that our redemption is meant to guide our hands, our eyes, and our mouth. In other words, let the good news of redemption become the lens through which you see the world. That's what he means by eyes. It should, it should change how you see all the world around you. 
He's saying, let the good news of redemption inform what you do with your hands. In other words, your behaviors should be driven by your gospel uh, understanding. And let the good news of redemption be on the tip of your tongue. It should be on the very forefront of your mouth. We should be talking about often with our friends, with our family, with our coworkers about the good news of Jesus Christ. Let it be your eyes. Let it be your hands. Let it be on your mouth. In other words, the gospel is to inform and shape everything you do. Let me give you three quick categories as you think about um, discipleship and catechizing children. I want you to write these down. Time moments, milestones. I learned this uh, at my last church and it has stuck with me. Think about catechism and discipleship in terms of time, moments, milestones. Here's what I mean. Time refers to intentional time, building intentional time into the rhythm of family life and discipleship. There should be regular occurrences of thinking about, talking about, living out the gospel. There should be time when you're opening up the Bible, reading it, talking about it, praying together. Okay, this, uh, this should be a regular part of your time. There shouldn't be many days that go by without having some gospel-centered, Bible-based conversations. This is both true for catechism to children and also in discipleship, meaning there needs to be a regularity to it. That's what time refers to. Moments refers to leveraging opportunities that come up in the everyday course of life for the purpose of gospel-centered conversation. That means being ready when questions come to have an answer. This is like taking conflict between siblings, which I don't know about you, but happens often at my house. And being, these are opportunities to teach about forgiveness and reconciliation and how you move forward in life. This morning uh, with, with uh, Emerson, he, was, he lost his Pokemon cards, couldn't find them for three days. And then he found them and he came and told me and he was so excited. And I said, hey, Isn't it so good when something is lost and then it's found? He's like, yeah, it feels so good. I was like, hey, there's a story in the Bible about a lost son. And it's an opportunity to just share. It's it's, It's capturing moments, leveraging them for the gospel. And then the last one, milestones. Milestones refer to the marking and making of occasions and to celebrate them and commemorate them. Significant birthdays. One thing we do in our house is when a kid turns 10, they get to go on a trip with, with mom or dad. And we say, hey, this is like you're, 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 you're getting older. We want to mark and celebrate and commemorate this moment. Around birthdays, every year we, we, we sit around the table. And for that night, we go, we want to tell you all the reasons we love you and why you're special and why you belong in this family. It's a day to say we want to celebrate this milestone moment. Every year, you get to be honored and celebrate. Uh, Whether it's um, celebrating holidays and significant events, it's recognizing that there are elevated days in our lives. There are milestone moments when we get to uh, mark them off and celebrate them and think about them as unique and special. Time, moments, milestones. If you think about those things, both in your uh, catechism towards your children, as you raise them and train them in the Lord, but also in terms of how you disciple others, you will have a regular repeated framework to see people grow in their faith in Christ. Friends, we are prone to wander, to drift. We are just a forgetful people. It's easy for us to get blinded by, sidetracked by, the, the, the other rival liturgies and rhythms of the world. And God is trying to tell us in this chapter, don't forget. 
don't become prone to drift. You need to remember and create rhythms in your life to be regularly, have your sin confronted, to be regularly reminded of the truth. So this chapter is giving us a framework to build these rhythms of remembrance so that we would be led in our devotions.